0: Building Men is brought to you by Finish the Race Apparel, FTRapparel.com, the creators of all things Building Men and by Become Stronger Industries, become-stronger.com, the creators of handmade steel maces, hammers, and other badass equipment.
1: Implementing an equation into your life, and I suck with numbers, so it has nothing to do with numbers, I promise you that. Uh, It's actually three letters, and those three letters are E plus P equals O. Events plus perspective equals the outcome. Now, the thing that we can't do is control every event that takes place in our life. We just can't, right? Like, what we talked about today, we couldn't control as children that our parents are screaming at us from the sideline. Like, we can't. Like, yeah, we could vocalize that we don't like that. But that that might not stop them. We can't control every event. But as we grow and as we develop, the thing that we do have control over is our perspective, how we view the events that have taken place in our life, and that ultimately determines the outcome.
0: You're listening to the Building Men podcast with Dennis and Anthony Meralda brothers on a mission to help you become the strongest version of yourself mentally spiritually emotionally and physically finally we are introducing the foundation a powerful online virtual community for young men in middle school and in high school who want to become the strongest versions of themselves mentally spiritually emotionally and physically young men who see themselves as leaders in their family in their community in their school and in the world for young men who know that they are destined for greatness what young men will experience in the foundation powerful virtual community is the foundational building blocks of masculinity improved self-confidence expert mentorship and coaching improved relationships understanding and dealing with stress deeper self-awareness, improved communication skills, improved healthy habits, some mindset work, improved clarity on career and purpose, physical fitness and nutrition guidance, and connection to a strong community. The group will meet starting on Sunday, March 5th, 2023, and will run every two weeks, but feel free to join at any time. There'll be high-end guest speakers, group discussions, questions and answers, and one-on-one accountability check-ins. The cost of the program is $47 per month. There's risk-free money-back guarantee if you're not satisfied after the first month. If you have any questions, feel free to shoot me an email. Buildingmencoach at gmail.com. Go one step further than you thought you could go. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to the Building Men podcast. As always, I am your host, Dennis Meralda. I am joined by an OG podcaster, someone in the podcasting world who now I hold in very high regard. I just was connected with this man recently and I really didn't know how big of a deal he was and then I started looking into what he's doing in the podcast world and I was like holy shit this guy is legit <laughs> his name is Matt Labrie he is a like I mentioned a podcast host he is also a branding ambassador he's a he's a New York guy we're going to get into some sports stuff we're going to get into our growing up playing baseball playing basketball our educational journeys and you know as as podcast host in this world that we're living in, crazy world that we're living in right now. What's up, Matt? How's it going, my man?
1: Dennis, first and foremost, man, thank you so much for not only what you do, but allowing me to share this space with you, man. I think it's absolutely incredible. I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. I I, I hope you are as well, uh, but very, very grateful to be here, to say the absolute least.
0: Yeah, man, I appreciate it. And you're wearing, as we started recording at 11.11 today, you're wearing an Atlanta Braves And I'm going to take a little journey back into the early 1990s. I'm a New York, New York fan across the board. Yankees, Knicks, Rangers, Giants, and just leading New York. And I remember the new, the, the Braves teams from the 90s. Those teams were absolutely legitimate. And I remember, so I was a pitcher growing up, pitcher in high school, pitcher in college. And I admired so deeply the way the Braves played baseball in the early 90s. They had a great pitching staff. And they played the small ball game that I loved as a baseball player. So how did you get into liking the Braves? Where did that come from?
1: Dude, such a beautiful story to my eyes, at least in my yeah. years. But um, my dad, you know, born and raised in New Yorker, right? And fell into rooting for the Mets. I mean, he's born and raised in Queens. So me being born in 92 eventually starts taking me to games and I was very very confused as to why he would cheer for the team that was always losing which was the Mets. Right. And you know when you're young you you want to win. You're you're playing the game, you're being taught the game. The purpose of the game is to win. Yeah, I get it it's to have fun as well, but like you you want to win. And I just never understood why my dad would root for the Mets. And we're going to Braves playoff games. We're going to like really high state games against the Braves. I'm like, you know what? Enough's enough. Like, I'm a Brave fan. And don't get me wrong. Like, I had my fair share of rooting for the Mets and rooting right. for the Yankees just due to influence, whether it be my next-door neighbor who was, you know, four or five years older than me rooting for the Yankees. They were winners. Or, you know, just my dad's influence. So I had my fair share of time rooting for the Yankees and the Mets. And I was like, you know what? That's it. I'm a Braves fan. And that was that was right around the time of Glavin, Smoltz, yeah. uh, Maddox. Maddox. Sheffield, I love Sheffield. You know, with that crazy bat movement, Uh, Chipper Andrew, like that's the team that I go. Justice, exactly, exactly, dude. It was it was hard not to root for them, and ever since, and I got a lot of heat growing up in New York, being a Braves fan. You know,
0: yeah, you got to. I mean, New York, it's a no nonsense town, right? I mean, especially Mm. with the sports teams, and if you're where it's it's being a Cowboys fan you know, walking around near giant stadium or being an Eagles fan. It's the same idea. All right. So let's get into father son dynamics there. So your dad is a Mets fan and his, his boy, he wants to throw the ball around in the backyard with you. And it, he's so proud and he he wants you to, to idolize Mike Piazza and the whole thing that's going on with the Mets. <laughs> but you're like, no, dad, I'm, I'm jumping ship. I'm going with this team. How, how did that play out with you and your father? First of all, and, I, and then I want to get a little bit more into father son relationships.
1: I I think he actually appreciated it because that was actually, and this is actually pretty surface level, to be honest. Our relationship is that, and our relationship is based around sports. And to be honest, I think it just added a different dynamic to us uh, as father and son. And, you know, it got competitive at times. And then, honestly, for a lot of years, he was just like, dude, I, I We're not competing with you, you know. Like you, you guys are you you guys are it. You won 14 straight division championships. You just won another five straight. So we we have been able to bond over Mets and Braves. In fact, we were actually going to go down to Atlanta for the World Series. He was like, dude, this is a bucketless item. It doesn't matter if the Mets are in the World Series or not. It's like I'm not a Brave fan, I'm not an Astro fan, but like to go with you to the World Series, this is a bucketless item for me. You know, so we found a way to bond over that. And it's been pretty beautiful. You know, every year we're at a game, great seats. We enjoy it. He he likes it because I get heckled when we go to Southfield. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm getting heckled and I'm doing a lot of heckling. And, you know, we we have a good time with it. But uh, ultimately, that's pretty much the baseline of our relationship was just sports in general.
0: So I'm thinking about this now as a father, right? And I'm, I'm very critical about how I was raised and how I also raised my son. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking back to... With my father, I remember there's a lot of great memories watching the Yankees in the late 80s, early 90s. I I still remember that. I remember watching them on Channel 11, the Don Mattingly years. I mean, that's where I really fell in love with the game. And then I think about myself as a father, and I remember thinking my son has to be a Yankees fan. He's got to be a Giants fan. He's got to be a Knicks fan. He has to be because if he's not, somehow I – failed as a father or I'm not as good of a father. It was my ego that was getting in the way. But what your father did here is he basically taught you it's okay to be assertive and to buck the system a little bit. You don't have to follow in line just because things had always been done that way. Do you think that was done intentionally or was your father just like, yeah, I don't give a shit root whoever you want to root for.
1: That's a really great question. And you kind of opened up a new side of my mind by asking it. And I just want to say that I appreciated that. I, kind of fight with myself sometimes because of the way that I was parented by my dad. Mm -hmm. And I felt like he was just more so a distant friend than ever a father. And I don't say that in a negative way. Like he's still in my life. We, you know, we still go out to dinner. In fact, I was just with him the other day. We went to the park to walk my puppy, you know, I don't think that he wanted me to be like him in any way. And, Even though we're talking about sports, I mean like anyway, like he wanted me to have a better life than than him in Mm -hmm. any which way possible. So if even if it meant something as small as like which team he was cheering for being that he hasn't seen a World Series since 86, I think he was okay with me going off and doing my own thing. Um, But at the same time, you know, you mentioned the way that you parent your son and how, you know, you felt ego was getting in the way or showing up in different places. I almost wish I had even a little bit of that Mm -hmm. because the only place I ever had that was when it came to me playing sports and that's where it turned me off. So I'll give you an example. My dad, I always at a certain point when I noticed I was very talented at baseball and I played for a nationally ranked basketball program as well, but baseball was really my sport. When I started to realize, all right, you know, I didn't know I was going to be six foot five, but I'm six foot five. I could throw the ball 80 miles an hour at 16 years old. You know, I I realized I had something and so did my dad. And the only time I felt like his ego got in the way and he started to control and he wanted something out of that was when I was on the field, you know, but outside of that, when it comes to life in general, you know, it, it was kind of free flowing and it was more like a distant friend relationship.
0: Was he the kind of dad that would yell and scream at you from the sidelines or coach you? Okay.
1: I hated that, dude. Uh, Dennis, I'm telling you, at one point, I was embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I actually got embarrassed. And I told him, and it's so upsetting to say this out loud, but at a certain point, I'd said, Dad, like, stop coming to my games. Like, I just didn't want him there because... You know, you get into school and, dude, you know, obviously a lot of this has to do with me, too. I cared a lot about what other people thought of me. So when and I'm still working on that, by mm-hmm. the way, like that's that's still a work in progress. Right. Right. But, you know, I'm in high school. There's gorgeous girls that I'm dating and, you know, wanting to be around. And, you know, you have your teammates and, you know, other parents aren't screaming at the umpire if that's a ball or a strike. And when I'm on the mound, like I can't, I wasn't able to box that out. And like, my focus was actually there more times than it was like where I was on the mound, needing to throw the ball to home. And it just turned me off. And I I had to say to my dad at one point, like, don't come to any of my games. So from like junior year through, you know, senior year and beyond, like I didn't necessarily have my dad around at some, at at most of the games, I should say It, it was a turnoff.
0: Right. And it's so interesting. That's a common thing that we see. I was raised in the same way. And I can still remember the feeling, Matt, of when I did something wrong, my first look was to what my dad, what was his facial expressions, what was his body language. And if I did something wrong, 100% of the time, it was negative. And I could just remember the visceral feeling of I let him down. And then my whole identity was based on you're someone who let down your father. So if you're a dad listening to this right now, and you're the guy that's running up and down the sidelines, screaming at your kid or screaming at the ump, knock that shit off. It's not about you. you. And you think, and here's the thing. And I think the parents who do that really think that they're, they're doing that to motivate their kid. Well, if I yell a little bit louder, they'll listen to me. Or if I tell them this, then they'll be more successful. But, but you doing that, is it about Your kid being successful or is it about you? And my guess, if you look deep, you're probably doing that for your own reasons, your own ego. And I would ask you, take a pause there. When you feel that, take a minute, take a walk around, take a couple of deep breaths because I can make all the difference in the world, right? I have to ask
1: you a question. Now, you mentioned your and I hope you don't mind me asking. Oh, bring it on. I love it. Yeah, yeah um, you know, in your experience when you're on the field and, you know, maybe you bobble a ground ball, whatever the case is. Right. And you look at your dad to see what his reaction is. What was the purpose of you looking? Was it to please him? Was it to, um, get an understanding of something? I'm I'm just curious, like, what was it for you? If you're able to look back and, you know, uh, revisit that.
0: It was fear-based fear. Okay. It was definitely fear-based knowing that, as I was growing up playing baseball, I was one of the more talented kids in the league or the most talented kid in the league for many, many years. And I remember if I did poorly, it many times would impact the way our the game went for our team. Mm. He was always the coach of the team, and I loved him for coaching the team, and he spent a lot of time. I wish the time was spent going on walks and talking about life, talking about yeah. what it meant to be a man rather than just firing ground balls at me at, a, you know, 115 miles an hour. And if I missed one, <laughs> we had to start over again until I got 20 in a row. But as things like that happen, if I, I had a batter on an O2 count and I wound up walking him as soon as it happened, I would, I could feel the tears welling up because I I was afraid of his reaction. So I do think it was, mm. it was based on that fear. So now your dad is the guy who's running up and down the sidelines. He's yelling and he's screaming at you. That's a negative role model in a lot of ways. Like, I don't want to be like that when I get older or carry that into my own adulthood. So where do you remember learning about what you wanted to be as a man? Was there a specific coach or mentor or were you reading books? Where did that come from for you, Matt?
1: It didn't happen until I was about 18 or 19 years old, um, which is crazy to say. Uh, And, you know, my parents got divorced. So I had my dad, I had the guy my mom was dating And I mean, I just I I didn't feel any place to resonate, you know. Like there there were, and don't get me wrong, I took bits and pieces from people. It's not to say that I never took bits and pieces, but I never saw someone I was like, wow, like okay, cool, you're teaching me. I never felt like I was being taught man to man, Mm -hmm. and I definitely need to heal my relationship with the masculine still. Like it's definitely something that's out there for me, but I want to say it came around 18 or 19 years old when I started to hang. I, I, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. I got into hospitality at a very young age, mainly because I wanted a party. And mm-hmm. in New York, you need to be 21 to drink. Well, if you got into hospitality, you got through the back door, you were able to party, you were able to drink, you got to do what you got to do. Beat the system. Beat the system. And I was making money. And yeah. I'm not just talking any money. Like, I was making a fuck ton of money. Excuse my language. No, we're okay. We're good. Okay. Um. Yeah, I was just making so much money. I was very grateful for this opportunity. And I'm hanging around these guys. And I'm just like, you know what? They're saving their money. They're telling me why I need to save my money. They're telling me to start a Roth IRA. They're, you know, driving cars I want, but they're also respectful. They're also, you know, very well kept. They do their thing in the right way. And I'm like, you know what? This this is my community. Like, these are my people. And I want to say there were probably about four or five of these gentlemen that You know, were three, four, five years older than me that really, really helped guide me. And although they weren't necessarily father figures because of, you know, very little age gap, that was the first time I ever was able to find any sort of resonance amongst other men uh, fully you know, uh, or maybe not a hundred percent, but at least 85, 90%. And then furthermore, um, I was able to work around Damon John, which I refer to him as a father figure. And, you know, that continued to scale up the ladder. So uh, it didn't really happen though until 17, which kind of made me feel like a lost cause for the most part.
0: So Damon John, I got, we have to go there really quickly. What's he like outside of the shark tank?
1: Dude, he is a kid from Queens. And, you know, even at his age, 50 plus years old, he is still a kid from Queens. I met him on my college campus, turned a quick little conversation into an internship, internship into a job. And I spent three years around him. And to be honest, there were just so many opportunities where he took me under his wing, not necessarily understanding why he was doing it, but. I'm still to this day, very grateful. In fact, on Thanksgiving day, I had sent him an email and I just wanted to say, I, you know, I just wrote out, Hey, Damon, I just want to let you know, you know, you might not know this. I've never voiced it. Oftentimes he would jokingly refer to me as his son, um, which was more so him poking fun at me. But I, I said to him like, listen, dude, you, you poked fun at that, but I want you to know, like you really are like a father figure to me. Yeah. You know, he is super chill I mean, dude, there were times he would play Monopoly with, you know, Irv Gotti and Joe Budden and these rap stars in the office. And then he would win the game, win the pot and then give me the money, you know, like just for hanging out with them. You know, he was that cool and he still is that cool. I I don't necessarily see him all the time, but um, very down to earth, very smart, very strategic, very driven, Mm -hmm. very family oriented, someone that I want to be around often, you know, someone you want to be in proximity with, without a doubt.
0: It's funny, you see these people in, you know, on TV or in, you know, in a sports arena, and the way that they come off is they're the persona that they want to come off in that capacity. I always like to hear behind the scenes, the people that are making eight figures, are they still a guy that you'd be like, I have a problem. Can I come to you with it, or do they How do they treat people when no one is watching, when the cameras aren't on? So that it's it's cool for me to hear, and it it gives me a renewed sense in humanity, hearing things like that as well. I think I don't know if Mister uh, Mister Wonderful is quite like that. Not quite sure. Seems like Cuban's a good guy. Want to go have a beer with him? Uh, but that's cool to hear about Damon John.
1: Yeah, he's absolutely incredible, man. I can't necessarily speak on Cuban, but just or or I'm sorry, Mister Wonderful. Cuban is super down to earth. Um, Gary V, all of these guys, dude, they're humans at the end yeah. of the day, right? They're they're humans. And I think what turns most people off that have some level of you know, uh recognition in the world or whatever the case is is when people don't treat them like humans, right? You know, and I saw that firsthand in many instances in life because I, you know, I was very grateful to work with, you know, not only Damon, but you know, 50 Cent and this person and that person and The people that didn't treat them like humans were the people that, you know, just got the picture and that was it. And it was it was less of, hey, man, like what's going on? You know, how's your day? This, that, the other Uh, the conversation, the people that actually had the conversation took, you know, a general liking or wanting to know how they're doing. That was a totally different relationship.
0: I've had the same experience, but I appreciate you sharing that. There's a guy's name is Nick Santanastas. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Nick. Nick. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Just a great guy. And so we had him on Building Men. And he's a Jersey guy and he, it was our the podcast was much smaller. It was a year ago, right around now that he came on. I think it was episode 109 and we're just shooting the shit with him and asking him a million different questions. And towards the end of the episode, I was like, Nick, I got to know. So Nick was born for those of you. If you haven't listened to the episode, Nick was born with something called Hanhart syndrome. He was born with no legs, one arm and one finger on the one arm. So his life has been absolutely wild. But he is one of the most positive, motivational people. You'll ever meet, but there was also this moment where I'm very curious just about a couple things, and so I asked him. I figured, screw it, I'll I'll go for it. So I said, Nick, I see you. You're on a surfboard. You're dancing around. You're lifting weights. You're doing a million things, and what do you do with your junk? Like, don't your balls hit the ground, dude? Like, what happens there? And he's laughing his ass off, and he said. You know, well, I wear compression shorts, I have little nubs on my leg, kind of. So I, you know, it, I'm able to like tuck it up and under. And then after we stopped recording, he said, listen, Dennis, he said, you have no idea how much I appreciate you asking me that question. And I said, Nick, I really, I was worried about asking you that question. He goes, here's the reason why you just treated me like a dude. You treated me, you would, you asked the questions like my buddies in high school would ask me the questions you weren't kid gloves. I'm not going to treat him like a regular human being. He said, you have no idea how much that means to me that you weren't starstruck, or I'm, I'm afraid to ask him because of of this Hanhart syndrome. So it's the same thing with these guys. It's, they just want to be treated like human beings. And it's not about the selfie and it's not, Jim Carrey talks about that. I would have a one-on-one conversation with you. Just don't come up and just take a picture and walk away. Like mm. pretend that this has some type of meaning in your life absolutely dude
1: that you hit the nail on the head and i really appreciate that you did that with nick he's a great guy but that's all people want is to feel like they're human you know as opposed to an object or a status symbol or this that the other like dude at the end of the day we are all one right and it's important to treat one another
0: like that you know and i i appreciate that and you mentioned nick that so you were a child whose parents got divorced how old were yeah. you when they got divorced
1: how old are you when you're in fifth grade? I believe I was in fifth grade.
0: 10, 11. That's the time yeah, frame right there. Probably
1: okay. probably right around that time period. And you know, my my parents did the right thing. Um, the their their lawyers made me go into therapy, which to be honest, I would go to therapy and I would count how many books were on my therapist's shelf. You know, like I would just sit there. And at one point my therapist actually became blind. So I don't even think he saw me doing that. Right. But um yeah, they tried to doing, doing the right thing. I would split time between my mom and my dad, but at the end of the day, dude, it was, you know, I I think it really did take more of a toll on me than I knew at that time, or, you know, even into my early to mid twenties. Uh, and then obviously started doing a lot of work on myself to reveal things that, you know, the impact of divorce
0: actually did have on me. So during that time, were you, do you feel like it was the right thing for your parents to do? Or do you think that they should have stayed together and just trudged through until you were eighteen years old?
1: Good question. Um, really good question. And I respect the decision that was made. The thing is, it's hard for me to be the mediator here because I get with get what my mom said and get what my dad said, and it's like, all right, there. You know, things don't add up. Right. And without airing their business out, it just seemed like, you know, things weren't happening on one side, you know, there was there was little to no action. And it seemed like that was coming from my dad's side. Although he'll deny that, of course, you know, just, uh, you know, manly, bravado, mm-hmm. macho. Uh, I didn't do that type of thing. Um, but yeah, man, I, I don't know. I, that's a really tough question to answer. I think. I respect the decision that was made. If you're not happy and you try and, you know, things aren't happening, then, you know, you got to cut the cord sometimes and you got to move on or whatever the case is. Sacrificing for your kids. I can't speak on because I don't have children and I don't necessarily know what that's like. I wouldn't have wanted to see my parents unhappy if I were to get the brunt of that stick. Right. If they stayed together, you know what I'm saying? Like, dude, Just even growing up, like I I envision this looking back on my life. I mean, there were so many times I would be playing in the living room, whether it be with, you know, my wrestling action figures or I had this uh, Dallas Cowboy football that was filled with gum and I would pretend I'm Jerry Rice and whatnot. And I don't ever remember my mom in the living room. I only remember my dad and it's because they were separated and I didn't know what they were going through at that time. So like to create friction by keeping them around each other, I don't know if that would have been good for me, you know? So it's a really great question. I just don't know how to answer that in full, like in a fully thought out way.
0: Yeah. I mean, as my children were children of divorced parents, it's going back three years now as the, the process started. So my youngest was as old as you were going through that. So I often wonder, and one thing that I talk about in my experience as an educator and training teachers now is traumas that kids are faced with growing up, right? If there's an incarcerated family member, death of a family member, it could be homelessness, it could be a million different things, but divorce is one of those things that can have a pervasive impact on kids developmentally and how their brains are wired unless the parents are really intentional in communicating with the kids and really thinking about their social emotional development. So as my ex and I separated going through that divorce. I was so hyper-focused on making sure that I provided the safe space for my kids, having constant communication with them, talking to them about anything and everything, answering questions that they had. It was... But not everyone does that. And it's and I, I often think about, okay, how did it work out? I mean, my kids are thriving right now, thank God. And and I think a lot of it has to do with that. But it was always something I worried about. And so I was just curious from a kid's perspective when it was and if those things went through your mind on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, I think one thing that I really struggled with was feeling like, and I mean, I think it wasn't just feeling, like looking back, I, I was actually this, was being the low man on the totem pole. Um, I felt like my mother took a lot of her anger out from her, uh, from my dad on me, meaning not physically sometimes. I mean, I got the belt every now and then Mm -hmm. I'll admit it, but I just felt like there was so much emotional neglect, so much time neglect, verbal uh, pushing away. And that part wasn't cool, you know? And then when she started dating another man and he moved into my childhood house where I grew up. I just felt even lower on the totem pole. And, you know, that causes a kid to act out, dude. I mean, I, I would act out all the time. I got arrested. um, I failed out. I got kicked out of high school twice. uh, You know, the class clown. And I I say to myself, Matt, what was like, what was the reason for that? It wasn't because you were dumb. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I I ended up graduating college with Dean's list honors and I I didn't know that was possible for myself, you know, until I did it myself. Uh, But A lot of that, a lot of that. And, you know, it is traumatizing now that I look back and I'm able to, you know, fully form what actually happened in my mind. And it's really something that I appreciate the way that you're navigating it by having those hard conversations and or what might seem like hard conversations and asking questions and navigating it more as a team versus like, hey, you know, we're, we're we all feel like we're a solo band here. So I actually appreciate the way you're going about that.
0: No, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I often will tell parents now, whenever you can get on the same side with your kids, stand shoulder to shoulder, metaphorically and literally stand shoulder to shoulder as you're talking about something different. So you're looking at the problem together. It's not this, um, it's not this, you know, divisive line where it's you, them, and then the problem in the middle. Like always take those opportunities and Typically, these are human needs, but when you're talking about adolescent kids and boys, especially, there are five needs that I speak about frequently. It's the need for autonomy to feel like your voice is a part of the space, the need for competence to feel like you're good at doing whatever you're doing, the need for fun, the need for relationships, not only with adults, with peers, but also with other men in your life at that time, and the need for safety. Autonomy, competence, fun, relationship, safety, if you are intentionally... Thinking about ways to meet those needs for your kids, especially when there's something challenging, you're absolutely winning. So as you were going through that time, that you're saying you're you're getting tossed out of school, you're getting in fights, you're getting arrested, all these things. What was missing? What did you need? Or what was what was the need that was missing in your life that you were pushing back upon?
1: Attention, man. I, I just wanted, I just wanted to feel some sort of love. Right. And I'll give you an example. Uh every summer, my father's parents my grandparents lived in virginia every summer we would travel down to williamsburg virginia and this one comes to mind and it was more so the attention from my mother but i can't say that i was getting the proper attention from my dad right like as mentioned earlier in this episode the attention that i would get was more so as like a distant friend i never had a conversation with about sex with my parents about Why to save money? They would always tell me to save money, but why should I save money? Like, show me why. Like, really getting in depth. So every summer we would travel to Williamsburg, Virginia. And this one in particular, this one summer really stood out to me. I didn't want to go. I'm at the age where I'm like, come on. Like, you're pulling me away from my friends for a week and a half during the summer. We only have X amount of weeks before we go back to school. Like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And my mother said something to me that really, really made like showed why I was being neglected or showed that I actually was being neglected. She said, go with your father and your sister, my younger sister will stay here with me. And I'm saying to myself, you're really pushing me away. And obviously I I didn't necessarily think about that until I started therapy in, at 27 years old. And I was like, wow, like I actually was getting pushed away. It wasn't just some imaginary made up thing but i just wanted the attention i just wanted to feel loved and i got a lot of tough love from my mom and to be honest that's not what worked for me like it did not work for me at all like i i wanted to be coddled you know like yeah. I, I i did not want that tough love stuff so um yeah simply just love and attention that's that's all i really was right. seeking
0: building men of character integrity strength compassion and empathy through coaching Mentoring, professional development, facilitation, and motivational speaking is our mission here at Building Men. To work with me, information is in the show notes on our website at buildingmen.io, or you can send me an email at buildingmencoachgmail.com. We are here to help you become the strongest version of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Now, back to the show. And as young men growing up, our mothers, uh, they're our safety net. They, they represent safety to us. And then in a crazy way, our fathers represent love. It, it, it's the, the research that I've done, it's come out in that way. And so if you weren't feeling safe and you weren't feeling heard, children need to be known. That's one thing that I know for sure is yeah. kids need to be known. And if you're not giving them that level of attention and and respecting that need, they're going to find a way to do it. And it's going to be like, hey, guess what? I'm going to let a fucking fireworks off in the house so you can see me. I'm going to get that need met in some capacity. So I often talk about this. Our traumas are not our fault. Like, It's not your fault that you had to deal with this shit, right? But it's your responsibility to deal with it, or else it's going to perpetuate itself in other relationships in your life. So you mentioned therapy as you went through that process, like what was that like for you to, to recognize these things? I mean, these are your traumas. How did you go about pulling yourself out of it? Because then I really believe once you do, it can become a privilege. It can become a superpower that you can use your pain to make, to make it something better for other people in your life.
1: Absolutely. I advocate for therapy more than anything in life. You know, I advocate for taking care of your health, not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, all of that. Um, For me, it was the fact that relations relationships were revealing things to me and in 2020 it was a it was like a breaking point i know 2020 was a big year for mm-hmm. you as well june of 2020 was an absolute breaking point i'm in this relationship and just the way that i was being treated was making me anxious and i'm like Dude, like this shouldn't be like we're we're trying to work through it but like the way that i'm being spoken to the way that i'm being neglected at times this that the other it was all adding up and going through the process of therapy, we started to unravel that. Well, okay, why am I attracted to this person? Where is this behavior of this person connected to? And ultimately coming back to my childhood, as many things do. It always goes back to childhood for the most part. And I realized like, dude, you you really have to identify all. And I'm, by the way, I'm still in therapy. So I'm not over this entire right. process. We never but, are. We're always yeah. in
0: some process of
1: something. Exactly. So I'm still working through this. But ultimately, I think the first step was just the awareness like the awareness alone was a game changer like i was not aware that my relationship with my mother impacted me so much the relationship with my father didn't impact me the way that i wanted this that the other uh that awareness then was able to lead me to some sort of action in regards to like reparenting myself doing some sort of inner child work and that is still a little sticky situation for me where i'm trying to you know get a good grasp on that but seeing Things change in my life, the women that I attract or find attractive, um, not just physically, but, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually and whatnot, Um, the relationships, the uh, anxiety stuff going away, coming back sometimes in different situations and whatnot. A lot of life shifted, which really showed me how powerful therapy actually was for me. And I'm, I'm so grateful for it.
0: It really is. And it's one of those things I wholeheartedly believe in it. Um, one individually. And then when you're with another human being in a relationship, Mm. I don't believe therapy is something that you go to, to fix a problem. I think it's more, it's like getting your oil changed every couple thousand miles. It's good to go in and, and talk about the things that are building up and we bring our traumas and there are triggers that we have that, might remind us of something that happened to us 10 years ago 15 years ago and it's not about that person it's about how we're perceiving what they're doing and they have no idea whatsoever yeah, so it's it's really cool that you're doing that and I appreciate you talking about it and and I do believe it's it's really really important it takes a lot of courage to do that and in our fathers generation that was pussy shit absolutely. I'm not going to go and sit on the couch and talk to somebody about my feelings I'm not gay you know absolutely <laughs> it's something that I would hear Dude, I I,
1: at one point when I realized that my relationship with my mom wasn't good, I I had asked her, I said, hey, like, can we do therapy together? First response out of her mouth was I don't need fucking therapy, you know, getting very defensive. And I'm just like, no, you do. You do. I mean, you could probably speak on this firsthand. Obviously, getting separated from your significant other of numerous years is not easy especially when there's little ones involved, when there's, you know, houses, finances, this, that, the other, I'm saying to myself, my parents, to my knowledge, never took care of their emotions after that. You know, like, I think both of them need need some sort of working on. And, you know, it's such a powerful process for for so many people. And, you know, hopefully, someone that's listening to this can just walk away and say, you know what, all right, I heard enough, let me do this for myself.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the emotional journey that you took us down right there as well, Matt. So you you mentioned that you were in the hospitality business and very early on, you realize like, hey, I'm living the life here. Uh, this happened really quickly. And there are a lot of temptations that can come along with that. I mean, you think about kids that might not have the best idea of what it means to be a man, and all of a sudden now they're making a lot of money and the cars and the women and the drugs and the nightlife is there. Did you fall into that? Did you slip into that mm-hmm. lifestyle? Um, and it, how did you how did you get yourself out of it? If I'm I'm assuming you're out of that lifestyle now, but how did you how yeah. did you pull yourself out?
1: Well, I'll, I'll say this: I drank and drove every Saturday for over three years, every single Saturday for the most part. You know, maybe some Saturdays I didn't. Then probably for one and a half of those three years, I not only drank and drove, but I drank drove and smoked weed on the way home or had it in the vehicle um knock on wood nothing has ever happened to me or to anyone else i'm very grateful for that i know that i made a mistake but that was one of the very reckless behaviors that i partook mm-hmm. in um i didn't have the proper guidance like i didn't know sure i knew what i was doing and very arrogantly i thought i was good enough to do it and you know i um, Very grateful that nothing bad has ever happened. And of course, at that time, Uber didn't necessarily exist either. But I was just very focused on making money and not spending that money, but saving that money or investing that money. So why would I pay for the cab, which was my mindset back then, when if I had proper guidance, it would be like, Matt, the purpose of you actually making this money is to be able to afford the luxury of not having to risk your life or someone else's life versus, you know, long-term thinking too. God forbid you did get pulled over and you then got arrested. Dude, a DUI in New York, you're paying 20 grand, you know, mm-hmm. for a lawyer and all of that. Uh so that was one of the very reckless behaviors I partook in. Furthermore, I definitely found myself selling weed uh just because I I wanted to smoke it and I I didn't want to pay for it again, you know, so that was my mindset there. I didn't really get into any drugs or anything of that nature outside of weed. And yes, I know weed is a drug. Um, That was that. I I can't say that anything beyond that was necessarily something I partook in. But what got me out of that was just simply time and maturity. Um, The more I realized what I was doing was risking the potential of my future, you know, which took some years. That's when I shifted out of it. And I said, dude, like, you you got to cut the shit. You got to got to cut the shit. Uh, so luckily, it didn't transpire into anything that was harmful to anyone outside of myself, you know, because I, I was harming myself by partaking in that. But it, it really took maturity. And again, if I had the guidance, I think that would have helped uh, and sped up that process a little bit.
0: Right. And and I'm glad that you did have a couple people in your life that came in your life during that time as you mentioned Damon John being one of them. So take us from that point to December of 2018 is when you started your podcast. What was going on in your life during that time before you decided to start the podcast?
1: Dude, I I felt and this is so crazy how life connects itself. I felt like I was being neglected in the workplace. And I'll give you an example. I, you know, I was working with Damon Uh, I not only had one job with him, I had a full full time Monday through Friday with him. Furthermore, I had a Saturday side gig with him as well. So I'm working Monday through Saturday for Damon. And, you know, I it, it came around the time for promotions and whatnot, and I got a very significant raise and this, that, the other. But I wanted more. And, you know, I, I put a proposal in and that proposal, not with Damon necessarily, but just in general, there was so much going on at that time. I did that. I was in Europe for two weeks. Damon was in Europe. The president of the company was in Europe. They came back, went to Shark Tank, this, that, the other. And I just felt like the proposal I put in was being neglected and Instantly, that triggered me. It it touched my core wound of feeling neglect from my mother or feeling neglect from who I wanted my dad to be. And it just led me to prematurely leaving that job. Now, of course, I left on good terms. I'm still friends with everyone there. I'm not talking negatively about anyone, but it's also not their responsibility to know that that neglect was touching my core wound that's my responsibility you know what i'm saying so at that time i just said you know what enough's enough i thought me leaving would get the attention that i wanted and it didn't like you're in you're in corporate america buddy like you you leave your job no one's begging you to stay you you know what i'm saying like no matter who you are right so uh again this is actually a regret of mine because it led me to leave prematurely, but not just the job and financial stability, but also like I left a lot of my friends there. Mm -hmm. I'm still friends with them. I lost a mentor in Damon because I'm not with him every single day anymore. So there there was a lot more to it, but it led me to some beautiful things. And I I can't discredit that. It led me to starting my podcast. It led me to starting my business. It led me to speaking from state to state. I mean, dude, I've spoken Fargo, North Dakota. I would have never gone to Fargo, Mm -hmm. North Dakota in my life. You know, like I've had so many incredible opportunities, which I am grateful for. But ultimately, it was that core wound of neglect getting touched. And next thing you know, I'm out on my own doing my own thing.
0: Isn't it funny in those moments where we feel... I can't believe I'm going to this right now. I made such a huge mistake. We look back on it in a year, in two years, in five years, and we recognize we needed to go through that mm-hmm. shit that we were going through because it led us to where we are as we're reflecting back on it. And Absolutely. there are those regrets that happen from time to time. But if you didn't do that, you might not have met these other people that you met as you're interviewing on, on your podcast. So talk to us a little bit about the podcast. What I know you're, you're in a, a holding pattern right now with a podcast as far as what the future of it looks like, but you put in the reps. I mean, you've been doing it for four years now, and that's a lot. There's a lot to be said about just showing up and doing it every day. Decide and then thug it out. And it's not always easy. It's not always pretty, but you've you've had some unbelievable conversations. So talk to us a little bit about lessons that you learned while you were doing the podcast.
1: Student of life is the best way to sum it up. Like that is exactly what the podcast made me. At first, you know, you listen to my first episode. I laugh at myself, dude. And I'm, I'm glad I can, like, I, I'm almost embarrassed that what was put out there, but I was also four years younger. I was right. 26 at the time, you yeah. know? So uh, it, it's, it's so interesting how, you know, life shapes up, but ultimately I'm going to try and give you some takeaways from the show. Number one, you know, as mentioned, student of life, that, that's such a beautiful thing, but number two, and this sh- really should be number one is having respect for other people's perspectives. And what I mean by that is if you, Dennis, and myself were walking down the street and we see a Rottweiler, you get excited, but I get scared. The reason you're getting excited is because your experience with Rottweilers and dogs is positive. Mine, on the other hand, is very negative. Having this show made me respect that more because how we experience life obviously differs. And, you know, just growing up, I guess I thought it was like one way or another. And just being able to become more well-rounded in that aspect and respecting other people's experiences and perspectives was a really positive thing. Furthermore, defining success for yourself is probably the whole premise of the show in general. Like being able to talk to 250 plus individuals about how they define success, what that looks like for them, how they got that definition is really powerful because we can get so caught up in Webster Miriam's dictionary definition of success, or what you see on Instagram as you're scrolling through. And, you know, you see someone flashing a Rolex and a Lamborghini, this, that, and the other. And it's like, oh, shit, like, I'm not successful. I can go on for days about this, dude. But ultimately, you know, it really put me into student of life mode and expanded my horizons, which is a cheat code, you know, and you know this from being a podcast host too. You you have conversations and you're like, oh, shit, like, you're you're picking up things and yes. next, you know you're able to ask ask deeper questions like dude you you are doing such a phenomenal job and I'm, I'm ranting here a little bit but I really want to give you your flowers right now because the questions you ask and the impact that you're having on this world and as a creator we don't necessarily see everything that we're impacting but I can tell you firsthand like how you're conducting this show over all of the episodes you've done, you've definitely grown, right? And you're you're able to ask deeper questions, more thoughtful questions, uh, questions that are quicker or whatever it is. Like, it, it's absolutely incredible. And I know you can attest to that.
0: I can echo the sentiment of going back and listening to the beginning episodes. And I went back and listened <laughs> to your first one. For, it was December 11th of 2018. And very energetic, very excited. And... Way better than what I was doing July of 2020, and I go back and I listen, and even recent episodes, I go back and I, I recognize my, my cadence, the volume of my voice, these little words that I would throw in as fillers as I was thinking about what to say. But it is you need to do like put in the reps, and then also appreciate the process that you've gone through. It's a it's a cool thing, and I I appreciate you s- saying that as well. And with the guests you've had on. They're little coaching sessions. You're asking really deep philosophical questions of really intriguing, successful people in the world, and what they're telling you. You're like, okay, I'm going to jot down what Mel Robin just told me because she is a total badass, right? So, do you remember a favorite? Let's let's start here. What was what's your favorite question that you ask, or your favorite line of questioning? Where do you what's what's one that you're like, yeah, this was this question was really really good, a specific one or one that you would ask on a regular basis
1: what's a question you wish more people would ask you that's that's my favorite question to ask because all the, and you know it's not about being repetitive with it or sounding like a parrot but when asking that question it really goes to show that you care about what your guest wants to talk about right and i always ask that question not just for that reason but to understand if I kind of use it as a gauge to understand Mm -hmm. if I'm doing a good job as a podcaster, meaning that, you know, we'll, we'll have a 45, 50 minute conversation. And then, you know, when I see the clocks ticking, I'll, I'll ask that question. And I want to see if how much that aligns with what we talked about. Oftentimes I want to say 90% of the time it it does. And people really appreciate that question because it also allows them to ask a question themselves and then answer that question. And who knows if I would have asked the question they want to be asked. And I know this sounds like a little bit of a tongue twister, but um, yeah, that, that's the question, man. You know, what's the question you wish more people would ask? And I'm actually asking you, what's the question you wish more people would ask you?
0: All right. A question I wish more people would ask me. I I've, I've just gotten into speaking more frequently about parenting. Okay. And I think it's about the intentionality around being a dad. Uh, I talk about with building men, raising young men, but what I do is so intentional with my kids. Everything is intentional with my kids. And it might not seem that way. It might seem um, that it just kind of worked out that way, but I'm really, really intentional, not only with conversations that I have, but rites of passage for my kids, not only for my son, but for my daughters as well, through them incrementally going through challenging situations. I'll give you a perfect example. My daughter is in... She's a freshman in high school, really good softball player. And she has division one aspirations of playing softball. She plays in an elite travel team and th- softball is her life this year. She decides she wants to do something in the winter. I might play basketball Dad. I might run track. Uh, I might even wrestle where I live. They have a girls wrestling program at the high school. Hey, that's great. That is awesome. Whatever you decide, I'm, I'm in support of you 100%. So she decides to wrestle and she starts kicking ass. Right now, it's you know, beginning of January as we're recording this. Her record's 10 and three, and she has nine pins wow. as a freshman. And it's really amazing to watch. Well, there's a scrupulous decision that comes her way. So she's on this travel softball team, right? And something comes up where they're having a mandatory practice on a Friday night, and it's the same night as a wrestling match. And she's a great student. She does really well in school. Socially, she, everything is going well with her. Well, she comes to me and she goes, well, Dad, I don't know what to do here. I have a softball practice that I can't miss and I have a wrestling match. And immediately I go into dad mode, like you got, you got to be at the wrestling match. You committed to your team. And what I decided to do was intentionally say to her, listen, I believe in you. This is a really, really hard decision that you have to make here. If you'd want my input, I'd be happy to give it to you. There's not going to be a right or wrong answer here. This is one of those gray areas that come up in your life, On like you have to, but what I would suggest is that you take the opportunity to, to gather as much data as you possibly can, feel through what the decision's going to be like, make your decision and stick with it. And a lot of dads would have been like, you gotta go here, you can't do this, or I'm my way or the highway. I gave her the autonomy to feel through this decision and it wasn't an easy decision for her to make it. I really needed to shelf my shit during this process ultimately it, it didn't matter which way she went. I mean, you know, it, it's all going to work out in the end for her. But what I did was I intentionally let her know that I believe in what you're doing and I'm not going to say you have to do this one way or the other. So that's an example. And I a long-winded way of, of saying about me as a, as a parent, because of everything that I do in my world, I think raising my three kids, that's the thing that I do the best Um, not always great at it, not always, but I do think that there's a lot of intentionality about how I raise my kids,
1: dude. I I hope you give yourself credit for what you just shared. Like that type of parenting is next level, and it's so beautiful to hear that. Like, to just the, the fact that you gave options, right? Like, hey, my input's available if you want it, but this is your decision to figure out. Like that is such a powerful way to parent. And I mean, when I get there, dude, we, we might have to have a conversation about parenting because I, I really appreciate that. that. That is so awesome.
0: No, I appreciate that as well. You you acknowledging that. And it wasn't an easy decision for, uh, for me to get there. i was I'm sure it's not easy. I went easy. in one direction. Julie, my girlfriend was like, hey, I see how this is impacting you right now. Take a deep breath. So I definitely needed some coaching through it. But as those things come up, I often talk about rites of passage, right? It's it's really important, especially for young men to have rites of passage, to have mm-hmm. ceremonial moments in their life that it's like before and after, you know? For boys now, they don't have that as much in their life. But it's not just physical things. It's not just going, doing a task that physically you might not have been able to do or overcoming a fear that you have physically. It's also the intentionality around rites of passage emotionally, conversationally, relationship wise. So that's an example of a rite of passage for my daughter. My son, the same thing. He was really nervous about things as he was growing up, Matt. He was really nervous. And I think a lot of it had to do with what he saw in, in the home Um, But he was anxious about new opportunities. And one thing that I've intentionally worked on with him is putting himself in intentionally uncomfortable situations and the power of intentional discomfort. So write a passage for him is do something that scares the shit out of you. And you might not be good at it and it might be really uncomfortable, but I guarantee you if you do something intentionally that you're scared to do when you come out on the other side alive, you have a really, really cool feeling about what you're doing. So those, that's another quick example. So about rites of passage, tell me about a rite of passage you think young men need to go through right now in the world that might not be talked about as much. Break that
1: down for me a little bit more. I want to understand rite of passage. I, I want to get a full grasp on that. So give, give me an example further
0: okay so as we think about for say for girls right there's a a girl she's a you know little girl playing around and all of a sudden she gets to that age goes through puberty menstruates has her period and then she's a woman in the world's eyes and in society's Mm -hmm. eyes for boys there's not like a ceremonial type thing like they're they're a boy. And then all of a sudden this happens and they're a man where it used Mm -hmm. to be this tribal thing. The young men would get taken out of their mother's arms, go with the men. They would hunt, they'd chop down wood and start a fire and they'd chant and they would come back and they would be a man. So example of a rite of passage for me was getting my driver's license. That was something where once that happened, I felt like I was more of a man. It could be getting your first paycheck, having your first beer with your dad. It could be something more physical in nature um societal in nature or even like i just mentioned a specific conversation that a kid needs to have like going and asking for a raise god damn that is a that is a rite of passage because it's really scary to do but if a kid does that when they're working at wawa you know then when they're working for damon john and they're like you know i want to be making 100 grand more next year that conversation isn't as scary when you're not having it for the first time with this multi -multi multi-millionaire
1: Absolutely. So I'm going to tell you what came to my mind first. But if I thought about this, this would not be my concrete answer. And I'm going to tell you why this came to mind first. The first thing that came to mind was getting your first job. Now, the reason this came to mind first was because I have been programmed to value money very highly. And it's not to say that being rich is a dirty thing or wanting money is a dirty thing. We need it to survive. But I don't necessarily believe that's the answer from my core self. It's hard for me to answer. There's numerous things popping up in my mind. I, I think, and this is something that I did not have, but I think ideally having a conversation with your father about sex is a rite of passage that I would have liked. I never had that conversation. I've obviously had a first job before and I was terrible at it, but um, my second job I was very good at. The conversation about sex to me, I think is almost, and again, I can't speak from a father's perspective, but I think it is almost a door opening, right? A door opening to say, okay, you can now walk through this door. Uh, And the reason I'm saying that is because I was never once taught about sex. I was never taught about safe sex. I was never taught about um, any of that. I had to find it out for myself. And I think that conversation alone is an absolute game changer from father to son to kind of, you know, and I don't know when that happens, right? I don't have a kid. I, you could speak on that better than I can, but I think that right there is the rite of passage that I think puts you from, you know, young man to, to
0: man. I I totally agree with that. It's, and I never had that conversation with my father. There was never the birds and the bees sit down conversation, yep. I interviewed a guy on the podcast, his name is Carl Thomas. It was episode 117. We called it When Shame Gets Real, and he was a guy who was addicted to to pornography. And he runs something called the triple X church. And he basically, he helps people that were dealing with pornography and sex addiction in their life. And he does it more from a religious slant, but it's not about religion. One thing he talks about is you need to normalize those conversations, not this ceremonial. Okay, child, sit down. I'm going to wear my smoking jacket and have my brandy here. And I'm going to tell you about the penis and the vagina. It needs to be more you're you're normalizing the conversation. And if you feel like it's the right time to have the conversation, you're probably a year too late already. Mm. Like one, once your kid gets a phone, the, the phone should come along with the conversation around sex, because guess what? If they're a boy, I heard Jordan Peterson talk about this recently. He said right now, 12 and 13 year old boys in 24 hours can see more beautiful naked women than the, the richest king in the history of the world could, you know, centuries ago. Just scrolling through and it's retraining their brains. And and it's a really powerful thing that boys are going through by having that at their fingertips. But what we can do is mitigate that by having conversations. And I, I started, I had that conversation with my son when he was 12 years old and I actually bought him a pack of condoms. And I said,
1: that's respectable.
0: I bought him a 12 pack of condoms and I said, here you go. I said, here's what I want you. We talked about condoms and he's like, dad, this is embarrassing. I said, it's embarrassing for me too, but let's just get over that shit right now. I want you to talk to me about anything that comes up. And I said, here's the thing too. And I, I shared with him my first experience when I was in high school. And I said, I was so nervous then, like I ripped through the condom. I put it on backwards and I was shaking. And I said, once you feel like you're ready to have sex, practice putting on a condom practice it because you're going to fuck it up otherwise. And it's going to be really, your hands are going to be shaken. Right. First, he's like, he, it was an awkward conversation, but then once we normalize it, he'll talk to me about anything now. And if kids are asking you the question, they are ready for the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Developmentally, you have to temper how you answer each question. But if they're asking the question, they've thought about it on such a deep level that if they're asking their parents, they've really, really thought about it they're ready for you to give them a response. So if they do ask you a question about sex, don't say, oh, we're not gonna talk about that right now. Use it as an opportunity and normalize those conversations throughout the day. Talk about things that you see in the news. Talk about things that you see in a movie. If you see someone treating someone disrespectfully, or if you see a man in a a movie situation that is using his bravado to be like, oh, you're my bitch here, talk about that. Talk about how that's not appropriate and that's not right. So take those opportunities.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It makes me think of, I was, you know, many times I would watch movies with my dad. And whether it be Austin Powers or, you know, that was one of our favorite, you know, three part movies that we watched. And many times when nudity came about in movies, especially Austin Powers with machine gun oh, yeah, and these, yeah. that, the <laughs> other, right? Yes. Like sh- shagging, this, that, the other. I would feel shame and I would actually turn away, not like physically, like look away from the, you know, the, the screen, but no conversation was ever had. So that's why I went with that answer. And I I appreciate the fact that you, you had that conversation with your son. And I I, I was going to say 12, like, I I wouldn't have even thought of 12, but you, you bring it up. Like there's so much access on the phone these Uh days that, you know, things are developing much earlier than when we were kids. It's, it's, it's hard to keep up in a sense, but I'm glad you did that. That's that's so powerful.
0: Think about this. When we were younger, if we wanted to learn about boobs, you know, we asked an older kid about oh, what, is a, what does a boob feel like? Like, that's mm-hmm. a little tell me about it. Or you'd get a nudie magazine and look at it, but it wasn't something that you had all the time with you. If my son wants to see boobs, he just goes in the other room for once and just types in onto a search boobs. bar about whatever, <laughs> and they will pop up. So there's this unlimited ability to access anything they want to know about. So if they're asking yeah. you that question, listen, they've already got it from Wikipedia or whatever source they're getting it from right now, they they got it from somewhere. So now you have an opportunity to add in your morality, your ethics, your code of conduct that you hope your children will use and take forward with them. So I, um, I appreciate that. That was your answer. That, that was, uh, it's interesting to me as I've, I've asked that question from time to time. That's the first time that someone answered in that way. So then it leads me to ask you this, what's the best answer you've ever gotten as a podcast host. So you you've asked millions of questions. What's the best answer that you've gotten could be to any question, but like, you're like, wow, That was really powerful. That one is going to, that made an impact on me as a human being. Shit. This is such a hard question.
1: As I, as I think about it, this might be a biased answer, but I have a screen right above here. And as I look, I see Gary, John Bishop. Are you familiar with Gary, John Bishop? I'm not. He has a, he has a book that's called, uh, unfuck yourself.
0: Oh, I've heard of that book. Yes. I've read that book before. Actually.
1: Yeah. He, he's a great guy. And this really stuck with me. One thing he said, he said the term healing in the modern sense of the word essentially makes you a victim or the repentance center. He was like, I use that word healing all the time. Like when I refer to what I do in therapy, I'm like, I'm healing myself. He said, I want you to do something. He said, I want you to remove blame from your life's experiences. He said everything that you've done, remove the blame from it. So you no longer become the victim. And, you know, this this is, I understand, you know, I'm not necessarily talking about people that have experienced rape or sexual assault or, or, you know, anything that's very serious. And I'm not discrediting what I've experienced, but removing blame from my life's experiences. So for instance, what we talked about today in regards to how my mother treated me, instead of blaming her, just understand that that was a part of your journey, right? Like you, you can't go back and change it anyway. So what does what does blaming her do anything? Like, well, what, what does that do? And of course you can't hold yourself as a child accountable and be like, oh, get yourself out of that house. No, you're not going to do that at 10 years old. But viewing life without blame and taking care of what you need to take care of for yourself was probably the biggest thing that as of late, I mean, this was, you know, an episode that was recorded in, in late 2022. That's the first thing that comes to mind. And I really appreciated his approach. And it, it's not an approach for everyone. It's a no BS, no fluff, just right up in your face. Like, hey, this is what we're going to do. And I appreciated that approach because I haven't got that approach in a while. And although I said I don't necessarily like the tough love, I do like it from certain people. And when it's not the people close to me. Right And Gary and I aren't close. Um, You know, obviously he was on the show, but that would be it for me is understanding that healing in the modern sense of the word often portrays some sort of victimhood or repentance center versus just taking the blame off of, you know, whatever life experience you have and really shifting that, taking care of what you need to take care of and, you know, bringing some accountability to the table.
0: Gary, John Bishop. I'll have to reach out to him and see if he's interested in jumping on building men. It's I I do that. The book is very direct, very straightforward. It's funny. My son had his buddies over last week. They're they're just getting into learning how to play poker. And there's a million life lessons with with the game of poker. Right. And so him and three buddies are downstairs playing poker. And I come downstairs and they didn't come up and say hello to me. We have a, a separate entrance into the house through the basement and they didn't come up and say hello. And I said, listen, guys, I love all three of you. Uh, if you're coming into my house, you need to come up and greet me, shake my hand and say, what's up. And, and they're like, you know, I'm sorry, Mr. the One of them calls me coach. I coached him in basketball. I'm sorry, coach. And I said, here's the deal. I said, you know, one, I need to know who's in my house. I said, this is my home. And if I choose to walk around with my dick swinging out, that's my choice. So if you're walking into my basement and you see my dick hanging out, Now that's on you (laughs) and they're dying laughing right now. But it was, I wanted to generate a little response of them laughing and like normalizing the conversation a little bit. I'm like, obviously that's not happening, but just so you guys get it. So I leave and we're talking later and my son comes home from school the next day. He's like, dad, he goes, Chris, his his buddy, Chris, Chris can't stop talking about your conversation with him last night. And I was like, really? I was like, what did I say? He said, the thing about your dick swinging. I was like, oh, that's right. He goes, he loved it. He goes, he loves how direct you are. He said, it's so refreshing to have someone who is a role model that will listen to you and is there in an empathetic way, but also will be like, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to put it out there on the table for you. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to yell and scream. I'm not going to be an asshole, but just here it is. So it was the first time that I recognized how much people truly appreciate that level of direct communication. It's not this passive aggressive way. It's not an aggressive way. Yeah. It's just, this is what it is. Here it is. Put it out on the table.
1: I love that. That That's You are a a very good father, I can tell. And not just for your children, but for the people that are in their life as well. Like being able, I I used to cherish being around my friends' dads, who I, I wish I had those relationships with. And, uh, you know, or would prefer my father to have that type of relationship with me is what I meant to say. And that right there was the spitting image of it. So, uh, again, you know, kudos to you for what you're doing on, on that front and on this front as well.
0: Thank you, my man. Hey, um, listen, an hour has gone by so quickly. I know it's been a great conversation when I'm, I'm like, I barely scratched the surface here and we've already gone through an hour conversation. I say this at the end of, the, of every episode. I really enjoyed the conversation. I truly like connected with you during this conversation. Um, I love the vibe that you put out there. I love what you're doing. I love how authentically transparent you were with every question that I asked. I, we got into some pretty deep shit here during the episode. So I just wanted to thank you for how you showed up today for the Building Man audience. I really, really appreciate it.
1: I appreciate this opportunity, Dennis. And, and like I said, what you're doing here is something that is going to impact the lives of many many people that is far beyond the thought and I, I just want you know to put that back out there because as creators we don't necessarily know how much impact we have but you know just keep that in the forefront of the mind as you move forward with this show like what you're doing it might not show right away or every day or week month year but like what you're doing is having major impact and what's to come is powerful so thank you
0: again for this opportunity thank you Matt before i ask my last question to you Where can we find you? How do we get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the best place is on Instagram. I'm pretty, pretty active on there. Maybe too active, uh, to be honest. But uh, I answer all DMs. It's at M-A-T-T underscore L-E-B-R-I-S. That is the best place. Um, I'm always checking the DMs. Like I said, I'm on there a little bit too much as I have my phone face down next to me right now. Hopefully it stays that way even after this
0: call. But that is
1: the best way to get in touch.
0: Awesome. And it's funny. I just and quick aside, I started doing some research around phone usage as I'm you know, working with my kids and with with teenagers as well. So there are these things called liminal moments. I don't know if you've heard of these things. So a yeah. liminal moment, it's really fascinating. I want you, listen, like as you're, as we're talking, anyone listening right now to really think about this, when you're in a situation and you're with someone and they pick up their phone, immediately what we do is we pick up our phone. Like it just, it automatically happens. And moreover, if you're in the line at the grocery store, And you're standing there and you're just waiting. We pick up our phone and we just scroll through mindlessly or you're at a stoplight and you have 32 seconds before the light turns green. We pick up our phones. It's this we need to retrain our brains to not have that automatic connection when we're feeling a moment of just stillness. So the next time someone picks up their phone or you're feeling the urge to what I'm telling people right now and some of the kids that I'm coaching, I'm like, let's start by just counting to 10. Once you feel the urge to grab your phone, take a deep breath and count to 10 and just say, do I still have the urge to look at my phone? And then going from 10 seconds to 30 seconds to a minute and hopefully up to 10 minutes where if you kids that are addicted to their phones right now, if you're able to resist that urge, that intentional discomfort urge for a couple minutes, it's a game changer in how we're interacting with the world. I didn't, I, I just thought of it right now. So I just wanted to throw it out there to you.
1: No, I love that. I, I do the Pomodoro method as I'm working, which is like, like 15 minutes of work or 25 minutes of work and then five minutes, 10 minutes, or 15 minutes of the phone. And I appreciate the balance because yeah. it, it does allow me to, you know, focus on something and move about. But I very much so find myself, I think out of discomfort, picking up the phone in moments in which you say. Yep. Um, you know, when it's like there's that blank space and it's like, all right, well, how can I fill it? Let me fill it with the dopamine hit yep. and see who interacted with me on, on Instagram or this, yep. that, the other. So I, I definitely get it, but that's it's interesting. And um, yeah, I mean, with the kids these days, it's important to it's important to get a grasp on
0: that. Right on. And I didn't know it was called that. I just the research that I'd done, I read a book called Indistractable. And in uh, the book Who's that by Near Yes. He wrote he wrote I, Hooked. Yeah. He's the one who wrote Hooked. And then this was yes. the, the anecdote to Hooked. And some of the work that I'm doing is working with schools to help them understand how to help their kids be more focused in education. Mm -hmm. And so reading this book was a game changer for me. And he talks about liminal moments. And I said, I knew that that thing existed. I just didn't know that it had a specific name. And I'm just fascinated by it right now. And it's something that I'm working through in my own brain. I wanted to bring it, to your attention as well. So the last question that I always ask, Matt, is someone's listening to this podcast right now and they press pause, they press stop. And there's one thing that that the listeners can do that by doing this one thing, it can make a huge impact. It can change the trajectory of their life, even by doing this one thing. What that's, What's that one thing?
1: I can't take credit for this, but this is something that I learned through an, an individual I had on my podcast twice and read many of his books. Uh, it's Implementing an equation into your life, and I suck with numbers, so it has nothing to do with numbers, I promise you that. Uh, It's actually three letters, and those three letters are E plus P equals O. Events plus perspective equals the outcome. Now, the thing that we can't do is control every event that takes place in our life. We just can't, right? Like what we talked about today, we couldn't control as children that our parents are screaming at us from the sideline. Like we can't like, yeah, we could vocalize that we don't like that, but that that might not stop them. We can't control every event. But as we grow and as we develop, the thing that we do have control over is our perspective, how we view the events that have taken place in our life. And that ultimately determines the outcome. And I'm not saying if someone's listening to this and they're in the middle of a breakup or, you know, they just lost their job that, you know, you switch your perspective and it's like, oh, this is a new beginning. It's really hard to do that in the moment of adversity. But over the course of time, if you can shift your perspective, you will really determine your outcome. And I think that applies to a lot of what we spoke about today, but ultimately E plus P equals O, events plus perspective equals outcome. And that was actually said by John Gordon, who's an incredible individual. Uh, Very, very grateful for him. And that is just something that has always stuck with me. And it's like ingrained in my mind. I should have it tattooed on me at this point.
0: I love that. That's the first time that I've heard that answer to the question. It's a really, really good one. Bonus question these four guys are drowning you can only save one of them it's minnie me it's dr evil fat bastard and uh austin powers who are you saving who's your <laughs> who's your number one out of out of the austin powers
1: well, I'm going to go with Fat Bastard because he is also Austin Powers at the end of the day, played by the same person. So I might, I might get as two is for... As Dr. Uh,
0: Evil. As is Dr. Evil. As
1: is Dr. <laughs> Evil. So I might be able to get two for <laughs> two for one there if that counts. But uh, oh, he, he's giving me plenty of laughs. So I think I'm going to have to go with him.
0: <laughs> yeah, baby. All right. Good to see you, Matt. Nice to, nice to meet you today. Building Man audience, go one step further than you thought you could go. We'll see you next time on Building Man. <laughs>